You're listening to Doctrine, a series where we examine the fundamental elements of the Christian faith, which are necessary for every Christian to know and understand. It's being taught to you by Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. If you have your Bibles ready, let's begin. And so tonight we're going to look at what now? (laughs) What now that Jesus has ascended? And so we're going to look at the church, the next part of the New Testament. Uh, As we look at the doctrine of the church, just kind of the uh, theological term for it would be ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, and we're going to ask ourselves, who is the church? What is the church? And what is the purpose and function of the church? Now, church in the Greek is the word ecclesia, and it speaks of the community of all true believers. All, you might get this, true, real, genuine believers uh, that Jesus is God and that his life in substitute of ours alone is sub is a propitiation for our sins brings forgiveness and atonement for our sins and in believing that that's what makes you a true believer and and we see the fruits of that that in a person's life that believes that there will be fruits of obedience there will be fruits of love there will be fruits of a love for Jesus and a love for his people. There's lots of fruits uh, that we know in the scriptures show that we are real, true believers. And so the church is a community of all true believers uh, for all time. Now, I'm sure when you think of the word church, even if you've been like an on-fire Christian for you know a, a good amount of time, if you think of the word church, perhaps that word has been tainted for you. <laughs> The word church, maybe you had a bad experience with a church. Um, You know, maybe you've, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings that are conjured up in you. And certainly for a non-believer, there's a lot of misunderstandings that are conjured up when you hear about the church. You think of rigid tradition, perhaps. Rigid, maybe even, you might use the word dull tradition, you know, and, uh, and maybe you think, oh, you know, a church is just a place where it's, it's a bunch of formalities. It's a place that you have to dress up. It's a place that you cannot wear open-toed shoes, you know. It's a place where you cannot wear a t-shirt or a collar. I'm sorry, I do not set the example very well. Thrown through clothes tonight. What should I wear? There's that nice light blue shirt that I like, but sorry. I've totally ruined your guys' conception of what church is. You know, but there's these misconceptions, you know, that's really what it is. It's misconceptions, you know, that you would need to dress a certain way. You know, a lot of people even think that if you go to a church, you have to learn a whole nother dialect. And, you know, we're not even talking about theological dialect. You know, words of theology, sanctification, propitiation. I don't know if you guys in your Before Christ days watch Cajun Man on Saturday Night Live, but propitiation, sanctification, redemption, you know, and you can just go on and on with all of those theological terms. But, uh, you know, but even in just a, a practical sense, a lot of people think, man, I've got to start speaking more holy or having some sort of spiritual draw out, you know, or something like that. And that's what a lot of people think the church is. It's a place where that kind of stuff happens. You know, and in the world, churches have become marginalized. You know, they've been set kind of outside of uh, the important places in the community, especially, you know, as we see the day of the Lord coming closer and closer, the, you know, the church has just been pushed out uh, to be this group of 
fundamentalists, which, amen, it's exactly what I am. I'm a fundamentalist, but of course the world uses that as a slander towards us. And, uh, you know, we're just these extreme radicalists, which, amen, we are for Jesus, but, you know, likened to cults and those sort of things. But the sad thing is, you know, that type of marginalization is only a couple steps short of where a lot of Christians are today. People that name the name of Christ, they marginalize the church in their own lives. And it only is given this small fraction, a portion of their life. You know, they, they think once I've done my duty for the week or month or year, whether it's I've made it to Easter or I've made it to Christmas, that's my, that's my duty, you know, as a Christian person, you know, or maybe even to the extreme of once I've done my duty for Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, I'm done and I'm going to go about my business. That's not at all what Jesus died for. That's not at all the church that we see in the Bible. You know, a marginalized church in a quote unquote believer's life. You know, a lot of people say that church has become benign. Church has become powerless. You know, it's for old ladies with blankets across their lap, you know, or for people that want to join some sort of choir. You know, that's what the church is for. That's not a New Testament understanding of the church. And so what place does the church have in your life? What place does the church have in your life? You know, some of you and and a lot of the church, you know, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but you're kind of the equivalent of a Christian ninja. You know, you sneak in and you sneak out. No one knows your name. No one even knows if you were there, but you know, that's what you are. (laughs) You're, You're a Prineville ninja, you know, and the Lord doesn't want that to be what the church is. Sneak in, sneak out, no fellowship, no accountability, no encouragement, no support. No doctrinal growth, spiritual growth. But something we know about Jesus is that he loved the church and loves the church. And so how do you feel about the church? You know, we're talking about the true church. How do you feel about the church? There should be a love for the church, the assembling together, the community together of true believers uh, for all time. Once the rapture happens or once we die, the church doesn't end, but we're going to see the church in heaven. We're going to be part of the church in heaven. And everything we see New Testament about what the church does, studying the, you know, rejoicing in doctrine, knowing the truth, worship, prayer, communion with the Lord, it's all going to happen in heaven. In fact, I would say that's what is going to happen in heaven. And then, you know, I don't really know that we'll snowboard or surf or ride majestic Palomino ponies in heaven. You know, if that's your dream of heaven, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's going to happen. But I will tell you what I do see in the scriptures. It's communion with Jesus. It's fellowship with the saints. It's worship. uh, And it's everything that we are to be doing here on earth, but in eternity. And so if you don't like that now, you're not going to like heaven. And so I would pray if I were you that the Lord would change your mind of what church should be what a Christian life should be, you know? Uh, so certainly convicting to me, because I know that I need to change. I know I need my heart to change, you know? I want fellowship with the Lord and with believers to be everything that I'm all about. And I hope that's your guys' heart too. But, um, you know, as we look at the church, it's been said that Christianity is not just about church attendance. Who would say amen to that? Christianity is not just about church attendance. Amen, right? And yet, 
perhaps that's all that is taught from the pulpits because it's become Christianity is not even about church attendance for a lot of people. You know, sadly, I think, you know, that might be one of the reasons we don't have a lot of numbers here is people, when they become Christians are, I'm not sure I want to count that cost. You know, Christianity is about church attendance, not in a legalistic, pharisaical way, but in an understanding what church is. And tonight we're going to have an understanding of what church is. It's not all about church attendance, but it is about church attendance. That's one of the things being a Christian is about, being part of the community of true believers. Are you guys with me? Is this boring for you? I hope it's not boring, man. We got we to gotta snap out of this, you know, this, you know. All right, yeah. Let's grow in our knowledge about uh, the church. So, Got to ask ourselves, how did the church begin? How did the church begin? Some of you, just right now, think as best that you can. This is quiz time, and you're the only one that'll know if you get it right or not. How did the church begin? You know, uh, a main point that you're going to want to know is that the church is not a human invention. We think it is, don't we? Because we have that view of dull, rigid tradition and this language that we kind of use in church or what, you know, so we think it's man's invention. It's not human invention. It's a divine institution. And the world and people that don't understand the church say that it owes, it owes its establishment to uh, its members, like some sort of rotary club. You know, well, we all have something sort of in common, so let's get together and invent this club or something. That is not at all what the church is. You know, well, we all served in a war, so let's be part of the VFW, or we all like, you know, to do community deeds, so let's join this, you know, or whatever. That's not what the church is. The church was created by the one that we have all in, uh, that we have in common. You know, the Bible says that the church owes its origin to God. It's a spiritual, uh, what we would say, organism. It's a spiritual organism not an organization. You guys get that? Something to put in your your notebook, something in your brain bank. It's an organism, not an organization. Okay? That's an important thing to know about the church. And so uh, there's this call of God that the people are tied to, uh, being part of the church. Um, Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, and then we're going to get into the historical aspect of the church. But since we know it's a divine institution, something that is spirit-given, uh, not man-made, we just want to look at the work that the Spirit did uh, in or to make the church. Ephesians two thirteen. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in the spiritual realm, this is what's happened to create the, excuse me, create the church. We were once afar off. We were brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the war or the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So the church is made up of people who were brought near by the blood of Christ and they were made into new men and new women. And it goes on to say that he might reconcile them both 
to God in one body through the cross. So the spiritual work of salvation, regeneration, being reconciled to God. These are all words that we've used in the last few weeks, vocab words from the last few weeks. Uh, We've been reconciled to God. The war is over with God. And now we're made part of this new body through what? Through the cross. It's, It's something that, you know, yes, happened in the physical, but really it's paramount in the physical realm. We're saved in the spirit because of the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. So this access, this fellowship that we have, it's by the spirit. This is all a work of the spirit. We've been brought near, not by our own ethnic origin. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at God's covenant with man. And from Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, all of the covenants that God's made with man never once depended upon man's ability. Okay, and I, I say that because we were able to see, like with Moses' covenant, that man failed, yet God's covenant remained. He continued to make these covenants with men. And so uh, never were our ethnic origins or our own righteousness uh, the, the equation here, but always God's grace, a work of his spirit. And Galatians chapter three, verse three is, is key for us where, and actually verses two and three of Galatians three, he says, hey, I wanna know this from you. When you received, did you receive the spirit by a work of the flesh or a work of the law or by the hearing of faith? And you guys that are Christians would be able to say, was it the law or was it faith that we received the spirit? Faith, okay? And so he goes on to say, um, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you made now perfect by the flesh? And so from Galatians chapter three, verse three, we began in the spirit. And so it's foolishness for us to try to be made perfect in the flesh. Day by day, Man, if we're going to make it through each day, if we're going to walk without sin, if we're going to walk with compassion, if we're going to walk with love, if we're going to walk with an evangelist heart, do we do that by conjuring up something in our flesh? Or do we do it by walking in the Spirit? Walking in the Spirit. We began in the Spirit. We're going to continue in the Spirit. So the origin of the church has an origin of the Spirit. It's divine, okay? Uh, And so let's just look at the history of it. Now, 39 times in John's gospel, Jesus says, the father has sent me. So would you say that Jesus was on a mission? Yeah, he was 39 times. The father sent me, the father sent me. I mean, we could go all night just with the father sent me quotes. But then in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the father has sent me just before his ascension, as the father has sent me, so I send you. Okay. So I send you. So now we're to be missionaries for Jesus. You know, pastor Ryan had, had this phrase that he used so well that we're to be missional. You guys remember pastor Ryan passing that on to you that we're to be missional. And it wasn't pastor Ryan, it's Jesus. He says, I'm sending you on a mission in the same way that the father sent me. So I send you. 
And so in Luke's gospel that you guys all just went clear through, I started in chapter 16 with you guys, I think it was, uh, when I first got here. But Luke's gospel tells us that in Jesus's mission here on earth, his relationship with the Holy Spirit all throughout his life is a prototype of what our relationship with the Holy Spirit, because we began in the Spirit, we're going to continue in the Spirit. Jesus's life is a prototype of what our relationship with the Holy Spirit is to be as a church. Okay, so we can look at Jesus because even in his uh, conception, the Holy Spirit, we studied last week in the incarnation study, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she was with child, not in some funky sexual way like the Mormons or the Muslims believe. Jesus did not actually have sex with Mary, but the Holy Spirit overshadowed her in a very pure way that only God could explain or accomplish. She was with child. Okay, so Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus's name is Jesus, not last name, but his title is Jesus Christ, which means anointed. What is he anointed with? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so he was born in the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. When he was baptized, what descended upon him? Or should I say who descended upon him? The Holy Spirit in the form like a dove ascended upon him. So he was anointed with the Spirit there um, at his baptism. He was led or driven into the wilderness for a time of temptation uh, and fasting. Who drove him? Who led him? By the Holy Spirit. Just like we as Christians, we're driven and led by the Holy Spirit. And then uh, we see in Luke chapter 4 verse 16, you can flip there. He went into a synagogue in Galilee in Capernaum and he picked up the scroll and flipped to Isaiah. So Luke chapter 4 verse 16 I love this. Um, I love this section. Maybe one day we'll go to Israel because the synagogue in Capernaum is still there. And though it's been rebuilt, the foundation stones are still there. So you can stand where Jesus stood when he opened up the scroll and read from Isaiah. And man, it's powerful. I know, Rory, you're all talk. We're never going to Israel. Someday, Lord willing. <laughs> but uh, so it says he came to Nazareth. Or, um, I'm sorry, it was Nazareth where he was brought up. You can go to that synagogue there. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So for Jesus, his life was a spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-anointed life here on earth. And so was his ministry. So for us to be spirit-filled and spirit-empowered, spirit-led, and to be spiritual is to just be like Jesus. It's to just be like Jesus as a church. So Luke's gospel, we see Jesus's spirit-filled life on earth, and Acts shows us the church spirit-filled and, and living the life of Jesus on earth. In fact, 
uh, we're going to read in a few weeks that the church became called Christians, which means little Christ. And as the Holy Spirit filled each person of the church, we're just like little Christ running around. That's what the book of Acts is. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 19, you don't have to flip there because you all know it because we've gone through it in depth recently. But Jesus said to go, right before he ascended, he said to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which I said would go to you. And he said, for John truly baptized with water, but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he ascended up into heaven. And then in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we read of them you know, they had been continuing uh, steadfastly in prayer in one accord. There were 120 believers at that time. So this is the church, even really before technically the church was born. You know, there were 120 people there waiting on the Lord. And uh, they're, they're waiting for the promise of the Father. They're waiting for the baptism or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as they prayed, as they waited Uh, There came a sound as of a rushing mighty wind and cloven tongues of fire appeared on each one of their head. And the manifestation at that time for that day was the gift of tongues was given. They began speaking in 17 different languages uh, by the Holy Spirit through the gift of tongues, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We did a whole study on it uh, three weeks ago on a Sunday morning. But, uh, and, and this led to all of these Jews from all over the world, 17 different nations, hearing these 120 Galileans speaking in tongues going, where did you learn Arabian? Where did you learn Egyptian so fluently? Where did you learn Parthian, you know, or where did you learn Cretan or whatever, you know, I I don't know the exact exhaustive list in my head of all the languages that were spoken, but where did you learn these languages? And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tells us that the gift of tongues is a sign to non-believers, And these non-believers were just like, whoa, there's something radical happening here. What is going on? And Peter saw the the confusion and the excitement in these non-Christians. And so he seized it as an opportunity to preach Jesus from the Old Testament, that he was prophesied from old to be the Messiah, but they delivered him up and killed him, but he rose from the dead. And remember the reaction at the end of chapter two that the people said, I'm not sure if they interrupted him, but it kind of seems like they did when they said, whoa, what must we do? What do we, what do we do? We killed Jesus. We killed God. What do we do? And at the end of Acts chapter two, he says, repent, repent and be baptized. And the promise of the father will, will be given to you and your children and as many as far after you that will believe. And so it says that with a great many words, he preached to them and 3000 people were added to the church in that day. So in one day, 26 times, 120 people were saved. That's incredible. 3,120 Christians now in Jerusalem. This, the church has been, dare I say, birthed, you know, the church has been, it's born and, and it's full of the Holy Spirit, this organism This living, breathing, active organism has received power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, At the end of what we're going to study on Sunday, Acts chapter 3, we see 5,000 people got saved after uh, the lame man was healed outside the temple. So now we're at 8,120, all within a matter of probably 10 days from Pentecost. 
Okay, so 8,120 believers. And then chapter five of Acts says that, and the Lord added multitudes daily. And Acts chapter two, verse 47 says, and the Lord added daily to the church, those that were being saved. So we see the, the growth and the birth of the church now. And so it's the book of Acts that you can read the history of the church. I encourage you to come on Sunday mornings as we go verse by verse through the book of Acts and we, we examine the church and we model ourselves after the church. There's a ministry that Mark Driscoll is a part of and uh, the ministry is called Acts 29. I don't know if you know, but there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts and there's this ministry that plants churches It's all about planting churches and it's called Acts 29. And I love it because Acts doesn't really have an end at the end of chapter 28. And I believe that's because it doesn't end. We are chapter 29. We are the church still growing, still going out to the uttermost parts of the world, taking the gospel with us. So the church is is, uh, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, And uh, we know that from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what did the church do? What was their routine? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in breaking bread and in... Someone said it. Fellowship and in prayer. And then we studied Sunday. And also evangelism was another big vital sign of the early church. And so that's just all part of the church. Now, and so you look at Acts, you look at the epistles that kind of explain even what was happening in the book of Acts. And, uh, and you see the church defined in the scripture. And sadly, throughout history, men and women that have the same Bible as us, they've all come to different conclusions on what the church is, how it should be run And so just, you know, man, there's a huge responsibility as a teacher. You know, Paul says, not let many of you become teachers because you shall receive the stricter judgment. So what makes my interpretation any different than any of the other men in history or in church history? Man, we got to search the scriptures. We got to look at context and we have to make the word of God our absolute authority, not tradition, not tradition. Okay. The word is our authority and the best that we can absolute to the T that we can, uh, we have to be modeled after the church. You guys know that, uh, that uh, during the Roman rule, the emperors were persecuting the Christians, you know, dressing them up in sheep skins and feeding them to the lions, having the gladiators kill them. Just so much that you guys have heard of. Nero being probably one of the worst. And, uh, and after that, if you just kind of know some basic church history, you've got uh, Constantine. You know, in Constantine, it was kind of the end, uh, towards the end of uh, the Roman Empire, emperor rule. Constantine uh, says that he becomes a Christian and gets all these Christians to fight in his army. And he makes Christianity uh, the nation religion of Rome. So it went from being marginalized to being the, the nation's religion, which that's dangerous. There needs to be a separation of church and state, but not for the protection of the state, but for the protection of the church. Because when Constantine made Christianity the church or the state religion, he defiled Christianity. And he began to take all of the old pagan customs and tweak them to become Christian customs, but they held on to uh, the, the pagan you know, they basically took paganism and tweaked it to have Jesus's name on it. 
And even a lot of the customs we have today, Christmas and Easter, and if you look at it, has its roots in that era of paganism. And so that's, that's a whole study for a whole nother day, I'm sure. But, uh, and so then you have Constantine, and, and that went into some you know, weird rituals and traditions for hundreds of years up through the Dark Ages. The Greek Orthodoxes, you know, having their thing, the Roman See and Roman Catholic Church and the Papacy and indulgences and, you know, all of these things just added up, added up, added up to really defile the purity of Acts, of the, the Acts Church that we're going to be studying for probably the next year and a half on Sunday morning. So if someone would have just stood up in boldness back in Constantine's day and said, wait a second, aren't we diverging just a hair from the word of God? The answer would have been yes. But it all happened so tiny, so such little tiny bits of diverging from the word that it almost wasn't noticeable. And so that's why Acts chapter 17, 11, we see we need to be like the Berean church and search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Again, I so appreciate you guys. I commend you guys that do that. Uh, because, uh, man, one little degree, you can miss Hawaii and end up in the ocean if you were in a plane, you know. Uh, we we got to stick to the word. Um, but the church of the word is the church that Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. It's the church, it's the foundation, but it's the biblical church, okay? And so we got to stick to being a biblical church. Um, some marks, some, some, some words used of the church are universal church versus local church, and not verses as if they're in com- combating each other, but uh, the universal church speaks of Christianity as a whole, all across the world, different tribes, tongues, nations, cultures, uh, you know, and, and a lot of churches, there's certain things that seem in order over there that if it was done here, it would be out of order here. You know, and I'm not talking scripturally, like we know scripturally what order is, but you know, it's just the way things are done, it's just different here. So there's a universal church, you know, founded upon biblical doctrine and principles. And then there's the local church. And, you know, the definition of that would be the local church that, uh, you know, that you fellowship at. You know, the church that you go to, the local church where you're fed. We have the, and of course, you know, the Baptist church and, uh, you know, the East Side church. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of churches in town. We're all part of the same local church. Okay, there's, there's one baptism. There's not the baptism in the Baptist church and then the Calvary Chapel church. And then the Ephesians chapter, I think it's four, tells us that. Um, but uh, there's, there's really one church, and then we just use the phrase local church to talk about our body right here, that, uh, that we all fellowship, and there's unity um, here. Uh, then we have the invisible church. What do you think the invisible church is? It would be the church as God sees it, you know? So I would say that maybe there's some in this room that, you know, if God were looking here, which I know that he is, he would say, that person, that person, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe not, hopefully there's nobody that he would say that about, but would say, yeah, they're not part of the church of true believers. There's an invisible aspect of the church. Then there's the visible church, which is what we see, you know, and as far as we know, you know, we're not 
judging to condemn men or anything, but okay, you know, these are the people that are at church. So, but we got to understand that the Lord sees the hearts and he knows who's really part of the invisible church. And what he sees is what matters. Can I get an amen to that? No? Okay, good. Um, Then we have the gathered and scattered church. Here we are gathered, gathered together. Uh, Then the second I say amen, we're scattered. You know, and, but when we're scattered, are we still the church? Yeah, we're scattered when we're at home and we're having our quiet times at home or we're at the Starbucks having coffee, whatever it is, we're still part of the church when we're scattered. And then we come back together for fellowship uh, and for uh, prayer and instruction and uh, communion. <clears throat> Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears defined the church as this. The local church is a community of regenerated believers. What does regenerate mean? To be born again. To be born again or to be a new creation, okay? So the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the Great Commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. I think that's a very good definition. You know, do I believe in Home fellowships? Amen. Do I believe in home churches? Sure. But if someone's going to be in a home church, they need to have these, these, qualifi- you know, these things. Because I know a lot of people that for the sake of, I don't want to be accountable to anyone and I don't submit to anyone. And so what, what is it? It's a potluck at their house. They don't get into the word. They don't, the man has no qualification to be teaching the Bible. He hasn't studied at all. You know, there's no authority. There's no accountability. There's no church discipline. Uh, and, uh, and on and on and on, you know, so do I think that there can be home churches? Yes. Uh, do I think that there are people that gather and call themselves home churches that they're not a biblical church? Yes, I do. And so it's just a good caution to us. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe we know someone that's in a home church and we just say, Hey, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what's the leadership structure, you know, uh, because the scriptures speak of elders, bishops, uh, overseers, shepherds, pastors. We're going to get into all that later. Deacons. Is that, what, is that happening? Oh, no, we don't have that. That's funny because the New Testament church has those things. Do you guys have baptisms? No, we don't do that. Do you guys have new believers being added to? No, we don't have that. Uh, okay, um, you know, may I suggest that you assemble into a community of true believers so that you have those things, so that you can be healthy? Um, and so... Uh, of course, all humility that I say that. Um, and so, but I love the last part of their definition, you know, to fulfill the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. So when the church is doing what God wants it to do, God is glorified because we're doing what God wants us to do, what we've been saved for, what we've been created for. Uh, and for their joy, they also put it, uh, because man, when we're doing what God wants us to do and he's getting the glory, we're happy. We're happy. There's joy. 
That's why Paul can write in Philippians chapter four that even though I'm in chains and I could be killed today, I've got joy. And I can write rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because I've got joy. I'm doing what the Lord tells us to do in the New Testament. Everyone doing okay? Everyone doing okay? All right, good. Okay, good. Uh, uh, We've got eight points. Eight points I want to give you of being a part of the body of Christ or being part of the church, okay? Um, Number one, regeneration. The number one point of being part of the body of Christ is that you need to be born again. You need to be a Christian. John chapter three, you know, Nicodemus comes and asks, what must I do to enter the kingdom? Jesus says, you need to be born again. And we know context of scripture. What must I do to be part of the church? You must be born again, regenerate. Okay. So the membership of the church It's not a matter of external attachment, um, but rather it's a matter of spiritual union. Okay, let's say that together. It's not a matter of external attachment, but of spiritual union. It goes all the way back to, we didn't begin in the flesh, but we began in the spirit. The church was created by the spirit, divine invention. So external attachment, whether that's being baptized into some church, whether that's signing a membership card, whether that's uh, being uh, partaking of communion. Partaking of communion does not make you part of the church. That is a work, okay? Um, You know, uh, being born into the church. You know, your mom and dad had you baptized as an infant, so therefore you're good to go, you know, or you were born, you know, at the church, you were, your mom went into labor in the prayer room or something, you know, none of those things, stupid old tape that I had when I was in middle school, some country music Christian singer. I mean, it was the epitome of why you wouldn't want to listen to Christian mu- country Christian music anyways. Uh, but one of his songs, I've always, it's always stuck with me. Uh, you know, if a cat has kittens in an oven, you don't call them biscuits. Am I right? Or if a kid was born in a car, it don't make him a Chevrolet. And it goes on and on with a really nice country drawl, and I'm sure you guys want me to continue. Let me get the guitar real quick. I've been practicing it. No, you know, externally, we're not made part of the body of Christ, okay? It's, it's a, a, a spiritual action that happens in our heart uh, as we're born again by the Holy Spirit because of his grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so if it's not a matter of external attachment, but of spiritual union, who's in and who's out? Who's in the church and who's out of the church? And how we ask that, how we ask or how we answer and how we ask, it's cosmic significance, major doctrine. How are we part of the church? Who is in the church? Who's out of the church? This is very important. And if we look at Ephesians 2, we can see how, you know, how we know this. One of many passages. But in Ephesians 2 verse 1, we want to consider where we were. And if you were here for the fall study of what sin is, then you know really well. And if you remember your life before Jesus, you know really well what you were. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, 
the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, we were under the dominion of the prince and power of darkness. Uh, We were by nature children of wrath. And, uh, you know, there's the, uh, I'll skip that anyways. Had a nice little ditty to tell you about children of wrath. But, you know, that was our nature. You know, children of wrath. And that's the plight of men. Hopeless beyond despair, not a thing in and of our flesh to offer to the Lord that would by mean, some means get his attention or, or get us salvation. Nothing in ourselves. The fall study, it was a deep study of that there is none righteous, no, not one. Both inheritively and imputatively, uh, we're sinners, not righteous. Inheritance through Adam, our sinful nature, makes us not righteous in any way, shape, or form. And we've had sin imputed to our account every time we broke one of Moses' laws. Okay? And so we are up a creek without a paddle and not even a toothpick to begin to use as a paddle. Okay? Nothing good in ourselves. That's where we were. Then we want to consider what he did. So Ephesians 2, look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? By your really hard work. Good job, amigo. Now, what does it say? You who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Nothing of yourself, all of him. Nothing of your labor, all of his labor. So we were sinners, separated, children of wrath, under the rule of Satan, at war against God, middle wall of separation up between us and God. There was a wall. But what did he do? Shed his blood. And the scriptures tell us in in the book of James that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Someone's blood had to be shed. The blood of bulls and goats just merely covered our sin. But Hebrews tells us the blood of Jesus Christ wiped away our sins once for all. It's an awesome thing. So we were that. He did this. Now what are we in Christ? Chapter 2 of Ephesians, look at verse 6. We read that we're seated in heavenly realms. So he's in heaven and we've been seated with him. We've got reserved seats. In heaven, we're gonna, we, we've been part of the inheritance of Jesus. All of his good stuff he did, he imputed into our account and the Lord sees us as righteous and Jesus shares the inheritance with the saints. We're seated in heavenly places. In verse seven of Ephesians two, we're prepared basically for show and tell. And, and Jesus is gonna show and tell us and he's gonna show us his grace. He's going to show off his grace to the world by pointing at Rory and saying, Rory, you were this, but I did this, and now you're this. And people will clap and applaud and bow down. And then they'll look at Lynette, you know, Lynette, you were this, 
I did this, now you're this. Amen, praise Jesus, woo, you know. Blaine, oh gosh, you don't even want to know what this guy was, but I did this, and now he's this. Praise Jesus, we're seated, you know, and he's going to show us off. And then verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, with which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is poema. We're his poem. We've been created for good works and prepared even beforehand that we should walk in them. So all of those things, we would have been nothing without the shedding of his blood that brought the forgiveness of sins. Now in our salvation, in us being part of the church, there are external results. Boy, howdy. Once a person is saved, man, naturally they're going to want to get baptized. Pub, you know, a public confession of what happened in their heart. That as they, as they were crucified with Christ and buried with Christ, so they also were raised with Christ in new life out of the water. They're going to be taking communion and remembering the blood that Jesus shed and his body that was broken. They're going to be fellowshipping. They're going to be serving. They're going to be encouraging. They're going to be loving. There are external results, but none of them get you to the place of being part of the church. It's all natural results of now I'm part of the church. So naturally I do this. Man, it's such an exciting thing because it was nothing about us. (laughs) I love to think about how I'm so nothing and how he is so everything. Um, but it was this, so there's this divine transaction that happened by the spirit of God into the soul of man, where we are made new and alive. We are saved. We are transformed. And Ephesians, I hope you're still there. Uh, flip back to chapter one, verse 13. And it's here in Ephesians 1, 13, where we see when a Christian was included in Christ, or perhaps I should say when a person was included in Christ, uh, Ephesians 1.13 shows us, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when is a person part of the church? Well, the Holy Spirit is with that person, convicting that person of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The word of God goes forth. And the spirit of God softens a man's heart so that he can, in a receiving work, believe. He receives the gift. Not a work of himself. He just receives the gift. It's faith. It's not a work. Something we got to learn to understand as Christians. I don't think we're fully understand it. But, you know, that moment that the Holy Spirit spoke, softened, trusting took place. The Holy Spirit came into that person and sealed that person with the Holy Spirit of promise. The person of the Holy Spirit sealed us as a guarantee of our salvation. That is when you became part of the church. The minute you believed. The minute you became a Christian, you were part of the church. No baptism into Calvary Chapel necessary. Uh, No signing of a card necessary to, to be part of the church. You know, it's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, not a work of the flesh. You guys getting that? Hopefully that's, that's drilled in as like the main point of what the church is. It's a work of the Spirit, uh, not a work of the flesh. And so, you know, the whole emphasis of Scripture drives us to the question, 
where do I stand in relationship to am I part of the church? I want you to ask yourself this right now. Am I part of the church? I'm not asking you, do you go to church? Were you born in a church? Were your parents really part of a church? Uh, can you spell, you know, Presbyterian, whatever, you know, I'm not asking you any of those things, but I want you to ask, where am I in relationship to what Rory's been teaching? Is it because of my works and my upbringing that I'm part of the church? No, it is not. You are deceived if that's what you think. And so today you can have the Holy Spirit change your mind. You can say, Lord, change my mind about that. I need to understand tonight, Lord, that I need to be born again. I need to put my trust in you and you rebirth me. You, I'll be born again. I'll be a new creation. It's all a work of what you did, Lord, that I'll be part of the church, the true church, and, and not a work of my flesh that gets me there. You need to be born again. The Old Testament speaks of this new birth as a new heart in Jeremiah 31, 31. You'll be given a new heart. And the New Testament refers to it as being born again. It's being changed and being made more like Jesus every day. At one point you hated Jesus, now you love Jesus. At one point you hated the word of God or the Bible and didn't want to be in the word of God or the Bible, now you love being in the word of God and studying the Bible. At one point you had no prayer life, you never talked to God because there was a middle wall of separation, now you talk to God and you commune with God and you're growing in your prayer life, so on and so forth. You've been changed, you've been converted like Peter told the, the listeners in Acts chapter three, we studied it this week. Be converted. You need to be converted. You need to be changed. Right now you're going to hell. You need to be saved. And the minute you're saved, uh, the minute you put your faith in Jesus, uh, you'll be born again and you'll be part of the church. Just wanted to read an article. I say modern, but it was released in September of, or I'm sorry, June of 2000. Uh, it's called the Dominius Iesu. In Latin, it means uh, Master Jesus. And it was released from the Pope uh, in the Vatican, and it raises the issue, what does it mean to be included in Christ? And who and what is the church? And just for a little background, it bears the signature of um, what they would call perfect Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who is Benedict Pope now, Pope Benedict now, um, Secretary Archbishop uh, Bertone, and Cardinal Secretary of State, who was the Secretary of State. Um, and then back in 2000, it was approved by Pope John Paul II, um, okay? And so uh, I'm just going to read this to you, and, and it just shows what various churches believe makes up the true church. And you may remember the story from our first week uh, when Kevin and I were interviewing people on the mountaintop about, or the viewpoint about the word of God. And we came across a, a Catholic man who, you know, told us that, you know, we were um, not in the right by being part of any church, but the true Catholic church, there's one Catholic church and the only leaders of the church have been uh, apostolically anointed from Peter on down in one single line. And uh, the, the source of his uh, authority was uh, the magisterium first, which is a body of tradition passed down throughout the Catholic Church. It changes. Uh, and uh, finally, the scriptures. And so I'm just uh, letting you know that there's different views out there. And so I'll just read this. It's from the uh, Dominius Iesu. And I'm going to lift a little because I don't have my glasses on right now. 
the Catholic faithful are required to profess that there is an historical continuity rooted in the apostolic succession between the church founded by Christ and the Catholic church. This is the single church of Christ, which our savior after his resurrection entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule her erected for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This church constituted and organized as a society in the present world subsists in uh, the Catholic church governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Therefore, article 17 says there exists a single church of Christ Uh, which I would say amen to, but they would say, but that church is only through the Catholic church, uh, which subsists in the Catholic church, governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. The churches which, while not existing in perfect communion with the Catholic church, remain united to her by means of the closest bonds, that is by apostolic succession and valid Eucharist, are true particular churches, speaking of Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox churches. Therefore, the church of Christ is present and operative also in these churches, even though they lack full communion with the Catholic church, since they do not accept the Catholic doctrines of the primacy, which according to the will of God, the Bishop of Rome objectionably has and exercises over the entire church. On the other hand, the ecclesial communities, which have not preserved the valid episcopate and the genuine and integral substance of the Eucharist mystery, are not churches in the proper sense. However, those who are baptized in these communities are, by baptism, incorporated in Christ and thus are in a certain communion, albeit imperfect, within the church. Baptism, in fact, tends per se toward the full development of life in Christ through the integral profession of faith, the Eucharist, the full communion in the church. So is this what we see in Ephesians that we've been studying? In fact, why not read Ephesians 1.13 again? In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. How are we saved? through faith, by grace, through faith, you know, and, and so, you know, to, to say, and the, the whole article goes on to say that, you know, people that are outside of the Catholic church, they can still be saved, uh, although it's imperfect. In fact, people that don't even know of Jesus, they can be saved, are saved, and it becomes universalism, that in the end, all men will be saved, um, whether they believe in Jesus or even God uh, or not. And so I'll just continue this article real quick. And then it looks like we're going to have at least two parts to the doctrine of the church. The Christian faith, uh, the Christian faithful are therefore not permitted to imagine that the church of Christ is nothing more than a collection divided, yet in some way one of churches and ecclesial communities. Nor are they free to hold that today the church of Christ nowhere really exists 
and must be considered only as a goal with which churches and ecclesial communities must strive to reach. In fact, the elements of this already given church exist, joined together in their fullness in the Catholic Church, and without this fullness in the other communities. Therefore, these separated churches and communities as such, though we believe they suffer from defects, have by no means been deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation. All right. For the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation, which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. So we just go back to grace. You know, we have to go back to grace, not tradition. You know, in fact, uh, in a, in a few weeks, we'll probably look at church government and how there were bishops all over the world. There were um, elders all over the world in every town that they would op- start a church. There would be elders, you know, and um, uh, we'll just finish these eight points. So we've got, you, you need to be born again. You need to be regenerate to be part of the Catholic, uh, the Catholic church. <clears throat> Okay, um, by the way, I'll have my notes online with the link to that if you want to read the whole thing. Uh, You need to be born again to be part of the true church, Uh, the true believers, the body of believers just need to be born again. That's the requirement. Um, But we also see some other major factors. Number two, qualified leaders, elders, deacons, uh, pastors, overseers, qualified godly men, deacons, men and women in ministry, loving Jesus, serving God, faithfully serving. Um, uh, The third thing was uh, uh, that the church, to be the church, there's a gathering together. In fact, the Greek word uh, is ecclesia, which means an assembly of meeting, an assembly of meeting for, we know from the book of Acts, for teaching, preaching, preaching. Worship and giving. Uh, Kind of an interesting thing. The word community uh, or this assembly in the Old Testament was edah, E-D-A-H. And it was a result of heritage or external works. Okay? But there's another Old Testament word for community, which is kalai, Q-A-L-A-L. So kalal. And uh, it was those that were united as a result of hearing the call, um, the call of God to them. And then, so that word, kalal, is translated in, into uh, the Greek as uh, ecclesia. Okay, and so, is it possible to be part of the eda without being born again? Of the community? Yeah, it's, it's possible to be part of community without being born again, but you're not going to be part of the community as God intended it uh, and really useful for community. So be born again. That's all I have to say with that. Um, and so there's assembly that goes on. Ephesians 2, verse 19, uh, says this. Uh, and basically the idea is, though we came individually, we don't remain secluded as Christians. Uh, and so it says, And so we've been looking at Ephesians 2 to see God's grace in saving us. And if you look at verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. So there's community. We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone uh, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, uh, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So as we're, we come together in ecclesia, in church, in community, we're being built together uh, to be this dwelling place um, of, of God in the Holy Spirit. And so without an understanding of the corporate or corporate plural dimension of the body of Christ, a lot of the New Testament won't make sense serving one another, loving, you know, serving the body, loving, caring for one another, uh, and exhorting one another. And then the gifts that we're told about in the New Testament, none of that would make sense if we were just to stay home, watch Benny Hinn on TV, uh, and just, that's, that's my pastor, that's my, there's a whole lot wrong with that situation there, but that's my pastor, that's my fellowship, and we all know people that that's, that's church for them. That's not New Testament church. Um, and so, uh, being born again, uh, big part of the church, and uh, having qualified leaders, having a gathering together, an ecclesia, it's the word for church, uh, partaking of the sacraments, communion, remembering the blood and, and body of Jesus that were broken, as well as baptism, uh, an, an outward sign of an inward confession, uh, or an inward change. Um, there's unification in the spirit, number five. Uh, you know, we agree on what we'll agree on and disagree on. You know, there's certain things that are, n- you know, non-negotiables. We hold to these with tight hands, and those are uh, the inspiration and infallibility, inerrancy of the word of God that's our authority, the deity of Jesus, the Trinity, uh, um, you know, the... Uh, Let's see, what else here? What else have we been looking at? Um, the resurrection of Jesus, you know, and, and there's probably more that I'm blanking on. And then there's some like, you know, when do we think the rapture is going to happen? Get out of my church, you know. Um, you know, that's a, we open hand and there's grace and we're studying the word. We're trying to figure out when that's going to happen or, you know, what do you wear to church or, you know, what kind of music is in the church? Those are all we open hand non-essentials, um, but there, there needs to be unification in the spirit. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we'll end on point number five there. We'll pick it up next week uh, because uh, we've got a lot left. And uh, as fast as I tried to talk, we just couldn't make it. So um, let me just tell you what the next three are, and then we'll dig into them more. Being disciplined for holiness is, being, is part of the church, part of being the church. Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> There's this, you know, order a process of church discipline. I see that you're in sin. I'm going to confront you on it in love with the harp to gain you. If you harden your heart and won't repent of your sin, then in love I get another brother and we come and we urge you to repent of your sin. If you still harden your heart and are stiff-necked and shrug your shoulders, then we take it to the church. Uh, we sh- uh, if they won't hear the church, um, then, you know, then we deliver them over uh, to the flesh for the destruction, destruction of the flesh. Uh, we, you know, we all know that we've studied that in depth together, um, but it's not for the sake of shun the non-believer. It's for the sake of, man, I hope you come to your knees because we want you back. Okay. So church discipline, big part of uh, the church, obeying the commandment of love, 
You know, First John tells us if we say that we love God, but we hate our brother, we're lying. The truth is not in us. We're not saved. So there's love that needs to take place. And then finally, an obedience to the Great Commission. And that's one of the big purposes of the church that we'll get into next week, that we're to fulfill the Great Commission. That's what the church is for. That's what the communion of the church is for. That's what the fellowship of the church is for. And that's what all the gifts have been given uh, to the body for. So a lot I know. Get ready, there will be more um, next week. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.